from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 10th. Today, finding a jury and bearing witness in a trial watched around the country. And tips for getting a vaccine appointment online. Uh, Good morning, members of the jury panel. My name is Pete Cahill, and I am one of the judges of the district court. And you have been summoned as potential jurors in the case of State of Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin, which is a criminal case related to the death of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. This week, the first trial stemming from the death of George Floyd is getting underway in Minneapolis. Uh, The police officer who was filmed in the video with his knee on George Floyd's neck last May is standing trial on charges of murder and manslaughter. And what's happening right now is they're beginning the process, the possibly long and drawn out process of trying to select jurors in that case. Mark Berman covers law enforcement for The Post. And this month, he's reporting on the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin. They're trying to seat 12 jurors and as many as four alternates in this case. And the jury selection process actually began well before people filed into court this week. In order to make sure that the jurors who are selected are impartial, the law provides that the court and the attorneys may ask questions to all prospective jurors, which must be answered under oath. And first, thank you for filling out the the questionnaire that was mailed to you and returning it. Uh, Your contribution to the important and serious matter at hand is best assured by continuing to provide full and complete answers to the questions that you'll be asked today. Late last year, possible jurors in the Hennepin County area were sent a questionnaire about their views on things like policing and the Minneapolis Police Department, the Black Lives Matter movement, whether they protested, if they did, what signs they held. And that survey sort of laid out what's what's at stake here, which is trying to seat a jury in the Hennepin County area. And I'm curious about how we're seeing these questions aired out in court and what the prosecutors and the defense are asking of potential jurors when they are coming before them and the judge. So when the prosecution and the defense are trying to select jurors in this case, they're asking a lot of questions about their views of police, their views of the video, their views of the Minneapolis Police Department. And they're being asked things, including whether they have views of the officer in question who is in the courtroom sitting at a nearby table while they're being questioned throughout this process. In your uh, questionnaire, you acknowledge that you've seen a Facebook video or certain videos of, the, of this incident, right? I have not seen the video. Oh, you have not. I'm sorry. I haven't flipped my page. So um, you've not seen any of the social media videos or news stories with clips of the video or anything? No. Okay. I've seen the still. There's a still image that was pretty common, but that's the most I've seen. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Um, but based on your observation of that still photo, you formed an opinion about what had what was happening in that instant, right? I wouldn't attribute that to the photo. I'd attribute that to news that was circulating at the time. So it's fair to say you formed some opinion as to that was more than just neutral uh, in regards to what happened. In looking at it, the way things were presented, and again, it it was 
clips so you don't see the whole film. You don't see what happened before that, what happened after that. You just see that one clip. And if you just look at that one clip, that's all you have to judge. It, it, it doesn't, um, it, it's difficult to remain neutral and not say, well, that wasn't good. But at the same time, you know that you're looking at this much of the picture. There's a lot more to it. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting was they were asking jurors about their experiences with the police. What is your overall perspective of the Minneapolis Police Department as you sit here today? It's a pretty broad question. I'd say, you know, all of my experiences with them have been positive. I think that, you know, the police department, um, I, I'm an advocate for community policing. I don't know, I'm not an expert on a whole lot of sure. policing techniques or, you know, the way that the Minneapolis police is, frankly, because I haven't had a lot of interactions with them. But overall, I'd say that, you know, my personal impression of them is fine. You know, one of the questions was, have people ever supported or advocated for or against police reform. They're asking people if they've been arrested and if they have, how did the police handle it? Were they professional, unprofessional? Were they verbally abusive? Did they use excessive force? And one of the questions was also, have you ever personally seen police use more force than was needed? And they've asked for explanations. That I find so interesting because the question of, have you ever witnessed or seen police use excessive force? I mean, that seems like a question that's basically are you a black person who has lived or grown up in an over-policed neighborhood? I don't know if it's being used to weed out that segment of the population, but it's certainly flagging a big part of the population in, in a way that makes me wonder whether that is considered impartial to have had those experiences. What I'm wondering, just in terms of telling the truth, would uh, an officer, in your opinion, be more likely to tell the truth than say, a bystander? I would say, uh, uh, yes, but that doesn't mean they're completely, uh, you know, out of the realm of, of not telling the truth. Let me know if I didn't phrase that correctly. Maybe you just explain uh, why you believe that. Um, I would say just um, in terms of signing up for duty for what, you know, a police officer is responsible for doing, uh, you would assume uh, that they're upholding of the law, truthful and honest. Does that mean a police officer cannot lie? No. But again, that's where I'd maybe bump it up a little bit that um, through the job that they're willing to take and what they're doing and what they see in their day-to-day -day life and their training, um, that's why I would bump that up. What will be interesting to see is when possible jurors are questioned in this case is to see how the, the prosecution and the defense handle people who have had those prior police contacts. Because some of these questions are, you know, were people satisfied with how police responded? Were you a victim of a crime when the police were called? Have you ever been restrained or put in a chokehold uh, by law enforcement? And these are questions that will really, it'll be interesting to see how they handle whether somebody might have had their own encounter with the police in that city that they found in any way troubling. Jurors have been dismissed after saying things like they were just suspicious of law enforcement. Another was dismissed, you know, for saying that he did not want to be part of a divisive case. And then in one point, you know, we've seen the defense attorneys question the impartiality of possible jurors. One juror was up for possible discussion. You know, she had written on the survey that she wanted to give her opinion on, quote, the unjust death of Mr. Floyd, end quote. 
the defense attorney questioned whether she could be impartial in the case. But it seems like this case is a really good example of the problem of seating a quote-unquote impartial or objective jury, because everyone has views on these things based on their life experiences. And it feels like if impartial means having a positive view of the police or not believing in Black Lives Matter, I mean, that in and of itself is something that is partial. It's it's a very tricky thing to try to figure out exactly who could sit on this jury, who could satisfy both sides, both parties. One of the interesting things about this case is that there was an effort to move the case. There was an effort to relocate it, and the judge said no. The judge declined a change of venue. The defense had argued that the trial should be moved out of Minneapolis, saying that they could not get an impartial jury there, that the state was simply just awash in publicity and people who had opinions and experiences related to the video and to Floyd's death. But the judge rejected that, saying it's hard to find a place that was not affected by Floyd's death. It's hard to find a place where it didn't resonate. Uh, and then when it comes to the actual jury itself, it appears that both sides are acknowledging that they live in the real world, that people are going to see videos, have life experiences, have relationships possibly with people in and around law enforcement. So it appears what they're trying to do is acknowledge that there are people who will come in having known something about the case, having opinions about factors related to the case, but not people who appear to be sort of prejudging it going in. And what is your sense of the importance that's being placed on the diversity of the jury and making sure that this isn't an all-white or all-black jury? One thing that we can say is that when the verdict is rendered in this case, one thing people will look at is, well, who was on the jury? Did they really represent a cross-section of Minneapolis, a cross-section of Hennepin County, a cross-section of our region? Because if the jury is, for example, all entirely made up of, of white jurors, the question will be, well, why weren't there enough people who represented other backgrounds, other people, people who might have had other interactions with the police? Because a lot of these debates over policing tend to break down along racial and demographic lines. And so the question then would become, well, was this jury truly representative of this community? So one of the questions, for example, is, is that police in this country treat whites and blacks equally. And you strongly agreed with that? I would agree, this, yes, that the system does. But I also understand there is racism, racism overtones and, and actions by people. Is it, is it that you feel the media conflates or exaggerates the problem? Yes, I think they do. Uh, you also had some pretty negative views on the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. Can you, would you care to expand on those more? Sure, I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter, absolutely. Uh, as far as the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I've I've done some research and I've read some articles and this and that as far as the, the organization or the politics. Uh, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, I have some, some misgivings about, about, you know, some of the, the platforms that they've, that they uh, uh, emphasize. So how quickly do we expect the actual trial proceedings to begin after a jury is found and things are underway? Once a jury is seated, the trial will last for several weeks. The expectation at this moment is that the trial is scheduled to begin at the end of March and the jury could begin deliberating by late April or early May, which brings us close to the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. However, the trial's timing itself remains sort of an open question, even as the jurors are being 
interviewed and vetted and possibly seated, what we have is a question over the charges in the case. The officer was charged with second-degree unintentional murder and second-degree manslaughter, but last fall, the judge in the case threw out the third charge, a third-degree murder charge against the officer. But an appellate court has ordered him to reconsider that. The debate over the third-degree murder charge is essentially pending. The judge has said they can begin picking jurors and has begun that process, even while the third-degree murder charge is, is still being debated. And do we have a sense yet of how Derek Chauvin's attorneys are going to be defending him or the case that they're going to be making to explain what is happening in this video that we've all seen? So far, it appears that the defense is going to argue that the officer involved used reasonable and authorized force as a police officer. But what they're also arguing is that what was seen on the video was not actually what caused George Floyd's death. What they're arguing is that he had drugs in his system and pre-existing health conditions. They're essentially trying to break what's what's known as sort of the, the, the chain of causation. They're trying to argue that their client was not directly responsible for causing his death, which seems like it's going to be one of the central arguments of this case playing out in court. And what is at stake in the outcome of this case? What will be a central issue here with this case, when this case wraps up, when this case resolves, is for a lot of people, the question of when and how are police held accountable in this country, when there are allegations of wrongdoing, when there is violence, when there are police shootings. Uh, Historically, police officers are very, very rarely charged. It's even less common for a police officer to be convicted for killing someone on the job. And in this case, as we've seen in many of these others, when police officers stand trial, typically speaking, Legal experts say that the legal system is sort of stacked in their favor. The legal system tends to allow them to use force, to use deadly force, to use what's viewed as reasonable force. But a trial like this, you'll have the community and the world watching and wondering when and how will police officers who use force be held accountable. And in this case, if the officer is not convicted, people will say, if this case isn't the one where someone could be convicted, what would it take? Mark Berman covers law enforcement for The Post. We need all these stolen lives to hear us screaming to the heavens that we are saying this, all right? Y'all with me? Yes, We have a duty to fight for our freedom! Earlier this week, as the trial got underway, protesters gathered in Minneapolis. And Joshua Lott was there to capture it all on film. They covered the George Floyd protests when it first happened last year, back in May. And so I'm currently back in Minneapolis getting ready to cover the trial. Joshua is a photographer for The Post, based in the Midwest. He talked to producer Ariel Plotnik about what was happening outside the courthouse as the trial began. The last two days leading up to the jury selection, there was protests outside the um, Hennepin County uh, Government Center. That's where the uh, trial is going to be taking place. (laughs) 
I think a lot of people are on edge and they don't know what to expect. There's people here in Minneapolis that obviously want to see Chauvin receive a pretty lengthy sentence. They don't want to see anything where, you know, he's, he's sentenced like Jason Van Dyke, who received only six years for the killing of Laquan McDonald in Chicago. Um, there's a lot of people, obviously, that want to see Chauvin locked up. I think people are just kind of, you know, biting their nails and want to see justice served for the crime that was committed. Visually, could you describe what it's like at the courthouse? I'm specifically thinking of the sort of like fence barricade type stuff that's around the courthouse. So the courthouse is downtown Minneapolis. It's surrounded by a bunch of high-rises. There's different styles of fencing. There's chain-link fence that has like, you know, bob wire at the top. There's a fence that has like tighter links. You can, you know, you can't even stick your finger through it. And it's pretty tall, 20, 25 feet tall, maybe somewhere in that neighborhood. And then there's a National Guard that's around. So I want to ask you about a couple of the photos you took there over the past few days. Um, One of them is of protesters holding a white wooden coffin. I was wondering if you could describe that photo. Yeah, that white wooden coffin was outfitted with red roses. They marched with it through the streets. There was a group of people who were, you know, so-called pallbearers that were holding the casket. So you can't help but to think about the killing of George Floyd. And I think people really wanted to send that message to people who are out in the street seeing it. Or if you're up in the high rise looking down, that would totally draw your attention. On 38th in Chicago, that brutality moved the blood of Americans and the blood of people across this world. And that is why we are standing today demanding justice for George Floyd. What is it what is it like to be there to be taking these photographs? How did it feel when you were taking the photos? I mean it's history. I mean this is a significant trial and people are watching all over the world and you know you don't you haven't really had a trial this significant since uh, Rodney King or you know OJ. So this is going to be one of those historic moments where you know you you're, you're going to have media from all over the world. You're going to have people their eyes glued to the TV, wondering what the outcome is going to be of this trial. And, you know, it obviously had a huge impact when it first happened. And it, Floyd's death touched people around the world and had this enormous impact and shifted the way things are around the country when it comes to, you know, racism. So just waiting and patiently with everyone else to see what the outcome is going to be. But as we demand justice for George Floyd, We are demanding justice for the countless lives that have not been filmed, the countless lives that have been ignored, that have come under the brutal brutality of the Minneapolis Police Department, the St. Paul Police Department, and this state of Minnesota, and this country of the United States. We stand with them. Ariel Plotnik is an audio producer at The Post, and Joshua Lott is a Post photographer. You can find a link to his photos at postreports.com. And now, one more thing about how to successfully make a vaccine appointment online. 
part of the problem in the United States right now with vaccine appointments is that every state, every local place, every doctor's office, every pharmacy uses a somewhat different system. So if you want to figure out how to get an appointment, you kind of have to master a whole bunch of different systems and a whole bunch of other technology all at the same time. My name is Jeffrey Fowler, and I'm the Post Tech Columnist based in San Francisco. I have not personally been vaccinated. My group is not up out here in California yet, but I have been helping my parents and lots of other friends figure out how to get vaccinated. You know, things like uh, mastering the refresh process on a website. So sometimes to figure out uh, if there's new stock available, you have to just keep pressing reload on a website. Some people don't understand that there's a button that you can just press reload. You don't have to keep reopening your browser or it can help to have you know, the browser open on multiple devices at the same time, or you can even set up like a fancy kind of like automated robot that presses reload for you or even reaches out and alerts you and there's a change on a website. So you can get pretty sophisticated with the technology to do this sort of stuff. Also heard just good tips like when the website comes up, don't try to book the the very first next available appointment because that's the same one everybody else is going to be reaching for. It's like those seats like right at the front of the concert. Those are the hardest ones to get. Everybody's trying to get those. So look further out, you know, go out a week or more or two weeks or three weeks. Try to book one of those because what's happening with these websites very often is you'll pull it up and they'll say, aha, we have availability for you. And while you're entering your information, somebody else was faster and they nabbed that slot. You know, it's about learning how to move really, really quickly when the availability comes up. One tip on that is actually just pre-type up all that information and keep it in a Word document on your computer so you can just copy and paste it in in the moment instead of having to retype it out every time. Honestly, these are all things that normally techniques we've seen used by the people who you know, want to nab Beyonce tickets or really hot you know, products like a PlayStation 5. This, it's advanced online shopping, but now it's actually a matter of life and death for people. Jeffrey Fowler is a tech columnist for The Post based in San Francisco. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.